All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm very excited to be hosting another conversation. Uh, this time, it is uh, between Andres uh, again and Steven Snyder. Steven, uh, why don't you say a few words, introduce yourself for those who don't know who you are and uh, what you do? Sure. Well, uh, I'm a Buddhist teacher, um, both in the Theravadan Buddhist um, uh, a lineage teacher in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, and also lineage teacher in the Zen tradition. I've been teaching for about 15 years and meditating uh, going on 50 years now. I've written a number of books. My fifth book will be out at the end of this year. The fourth one just came out, Demystifying Awakening. And I teach at my website, awakeningdharma.org. Thanks, Stephen. And I really recommend to those those listening, Stephen's books are great. Go go check them out. And uh, Andres? Yeah, one of the uh, co-founders of the Quelia Research Institute, which is a, a small organization that seeks to elucidate the mathematical properties of consciousness. And yeah, I mean, along the way, we have identified pragmatic solutions to tackle extreme pain, as well as, yeah, essentially like narrow down on like really promising sets of experiences to investigate in order to, yeah, essentially elucidate what is the uh, structure of things such as uh, valence and emotional updating. So I'm very, very excited to, to be here and uh, bounce some of these ideas and models off of uh, Stephen and yeah, see, see what happens essentially. Okay, great. Thanks both uh, for your introductions. Um, and I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about today uh, are these uh, profound altered states of consciousness known in uh, Buddhism as, as the jhanas. Uh, we're probably going to diverge. It's a free-ranging conversation uh, without, you know, much, much structure. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, for Andres, your purposes, and, you know, jump in here to tell me if I'm off here. From a theoretical perspective, these altered states are some of the more interesting in that they present kind of a radically uh, different mode of consciousness, both during the state itself and then uh, as a possibility for transforming uh, one's default state. Is that on track? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, as a, as a disclaimer, I don't personally have access to the Janus, although <laughs> slowly working towards that. But uh, yeah, I mean, most of my uh, experience base, yeah, comes from other, other sources. But um, essentially, Janas do seem especially interesting for two reasons. I mean, first of all, you know, they play with uh, attention and awareness and in a very, very, you know, highly, um, highly, uh, I suppose, like um, specified way, like it, it re they're really, really, you know, like talking about concentration, you want to understand concentration, it seems like Janas are a really, really key piece of the puzzle. The other thing, though, is um, they interface very, very heavily with uh, valence. I mean, essentially, people feel there's a positive hedonic quality to Janus. And uh, the fact as well that as you progress on them, essentially the experiences become simpler, seem to go in line with uh, a very core paradigm at QRI that is called the symmetry theory of valence, which is essentially this idea that um, there is a very, very tight relationship between uh, how pleasant an experience is and how symmetrical it is. Now, how symmetrical it is may actually manifest in many ways. I mean, there is, a, for example, temporal symmetry, which is like how regular kind of the time slices of your experiences are, how many, how regular the intervals are between them. 
um, but also like the phenomenal space, like the feeling of space itself, uh, whenever it's uh, smoother and it has like, doesn't have wrinkles or pinch points or, or shearing or stress that also would kind of make it more symmetrical. But there's many other ways in which symmetry may manifest. And at the very, you know, yeah, very high end of, uh, of the genus, when you're talking about, you know, experience of infinite space or boundless space or, or nothingness and things like that, it really does seem to be like those are like uh, states of consciousness with very little information content. And yet people describe them as, yeah, very high level of well-being, even if it's not, you know, typical classical <laughs> pleasure as we conceptualize it in, in normal human society, it is still some variety of, of well-being. And uh, to us, that connection is really, really interesting and promising. So uh, I guess like for a little bit of context, like the sort of like studies that we're very excited to actually conduct is essentially measures of symmetry in brain activity um, and correlating them with essentially, yeah, fMRI or MEG, EEG of advanced Janus. And I mean, at least insofar as like EEG is concerned with this, with a lower Janus, there seems to be some interesting correlations here, but yeah, it's too early in the research to really say, <laughs> nail down this, uh, this, this particular correlation. But yeah. That's a, as a, as a matter of introduction for why it's interesting for us. <laughs> Okay, thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, Stephen, by way of introduction, maybe you could give just a, a brief boilerplate description of the, the lineage in which you were taught the jhanas and how it may differ from other notions of jhana that are, are, are circling around. Yeah, um, I, was, I was taught by a teacher from Myanmar, Paul Oksaidao, and he's pretty, I'd say, uh, the majority of folks in the West would regard him as somebody who was very attained, both as a scholar and a meditation master. And he also is known to have the most rigorous of the jhanas in terms of what what is jhana, the bar is higher. And again, I don't say that in any, any hierarchical way, just I think it's common knowledge um, that they're the hardest. So, and, and we look at it that they're more exacting rather than hard. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also it's a you know he's someone who uses the suttas, the Buddha's sermons, as well as the Vasudhimaga, which is a meditation manual uh, written in I don't know five or six hundred something like that, that details these practices and more. All right, thank you. And uh, from here on out, I think I will just leave you two to it. I may uh, interject. Uh, if there's some kind of misunderstanding or I want to clarify something for the audience. But other than that, uh, I'll pretty much just be hanging out here in the background, uh, being a fly on the wall, enjoying the conversation. So uh, please uh, go, go ahead, guys. Sure. <laughs> um, I would say how I would define jhana would be uh, a no self merger with a non dual state as just a general perspective. And then, of course, the state would be very different based upon the jhana and the practice that accesses, accesses that jhana. Those are all there. You know, I hate to say condition, but they're in, they influence the experience. <laughs> yeah, something that was, um, yeah, really interesting to me. Um, I saw your uh, interview with uh, Guru Viking is like, yeah, it, it seems like you're 
main i mean correct me if i'm wrong but like your, your main kind of approach towards the jenna is through loving kindness is that correct it it is i'm that's more where i'm focusing uh, but with all the brahma viharas so all the heart practices i find them easier for people to access jhana and of course if one if jhana doesn't arise there's still so much good juiciness heart juiciness in the practice rather than with the breath awareness the anapanasati there can be a lot of striving and a lot of uh, disappointment and self-judgment if one doesn't progress in the practice. So for that reason, I find it a little bit better access for folks. Yeah, so the, the thing that uh, you know sparks my interest right away in terms of that combination or that access point is that, uh, I guess, yeah, the Brahma Viharas in general, but uh, loving kindness in including, um, seem to me also to be essentially recruiting a special kind of a symmetry or smoothness of of experience um i mean some people describe like essentially very intense meta experiences as i mean the terms that i've heard is things such as um uh, and also from a meditation retreat I, I i attended like like smoothness of space and time and um, some kind of a balance and reciprocity in your representations of others um and that might be potentially a very helpful platform to kind of like seed the conditions for for jana if that's your concentration object mm -hmm. uh, it also seems like from a, a lot of phenomenology and you know also like neuroscience that there's this kind of like paradigm of perception uh Winston and i have also talked about this i think we talked about it in a, in a different podcast which is um that essentially in 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 this model your experience is a balance of forces and what you're experiencing is kind of like every part of your experience is trying to expand as much as possible, but uh, is being constrained by every other part of the experience. This is kind of like a, you know, a, a beach is a balance of forces can only happen if the conditions of wind and water and the, the you know, the currents are all, all there for, for it to actually balance out. Likewise, like a particular scene, uh, whether it's like visual field or any other, any, any other sense or they um what results is kind of this balance of forces but then with very heavy concentration it's sort of like you're taking one aspect of your experience and then letting it expand <laughs> across your entire experience and just become become that so it seems you know hypothetically that if your object of concentration itself is like very smooth uh very symmetrical in one way that may potentially influence the overarching quality of the state once you have like actually expanded it over the entire experience i i wonder if you might uh, yeah comment on this <laughs> on this approach sure yeah I, I think what you say makes sense i think there's truth to that and uh, a couple of things one way that i teach the brahma vihara is the heart qualities say with metta rather than calling it loving kindness i call it an unconditioned universal love because I consider these to be qualities of the absolute, which is the source in Buddhism, absolute reality. And that means they're qualities of each of our true nature. So rather than focusing on an emotion or a thought emotion to work with, we're really trying to discern what's already here and also is unconditioned. So we don't need to generate it. We don't need to manufacture it. It's, we're just getting in touch with something that's always existing. So that changes the dynamic in the relationship. So it's less dependent on me making it. And then the other component is 
uh, in the process of developing or expanding or you know entering having jhana rise and entering jhana is there has to be two things one a certain amount of surrender not complete surrender but something close to that and then uh, the reason the jhanas are so helpful uh, excuse me the brahma viharas are helpful with jhana is because what keeps us from entering jhana we have certain resistances typically around worry some type of fear and loss of control. And that's also something that the, the heart practices help. We, we develop more trust, we let go more easily. So it's gonna help us. And also there's that deep-seated fear, that ego deficiency. Well, everybody else here is gonna get it probably, but not me, because I've done something bad, I'm, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, uh, I'm lousy, you know, whatever the story is. And so again, Brahma Viharas help fill that in in a way that we're not sort of mired in that deficiency approaching the practice. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things that uh, come, come out of these. I mean, one very brief, I guess, uh, side note is like, do you think there might be a correlation between like ease of entry and actually, you know, how, how much, um, how moral you've been behaving recently. I mean, I'd imagine like teaching uh, Brahma Viharas at a prison might be potentially challenging, especially if, if people have actually, you know, mur murdered somebody recently or something like that. Um, do you think like that might be a, a bit of a, there might be a correlation there? Well, the, the two things, one, sila, as we call it, which is behavior, wholesome behavior, absolutely plays a role in this. So it, you know, really just the le the more we're doing that's in symmetry and leaves the less wake behind us, the less cleanup we have to do. And I will say I've got two students who do teach um, some of the Brahmaviharas to prison inmates and those who are who, they self select into the group, but the, those that self select the majority are able to get in contact with metta or what I teach is in another practice called innate goodness. And they're, they're able to get in touch with it, with the exception of the sociopaths and psychopaths. They, they can't easily do it. And so my advice to the students was ask each of them, what do you need to access this? Because it seems very individualistic based upon their psychological structuring. And, I, and I'm not very well trained in psychology, but just, you know, from what I understand, that was my recommendation to them. They're, they're actually trained in psychology, the folks who are doing it. Okay, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, um, okay, so maybe <clears throat> a little bit of a context for kind of a <laughs> furthering the conversation. So um, two broad ideas. Uh, the first one is uh, at QRI, essentially a very core paradigm is what we call quilia formalism. So essentially this is the idea that for any given experience, there is a corresponding mathematical object such that the mathematical features of that object are isomorphic to the phenomenology of the experience. I mean, essentially, we're trying to formalize consciousness in the same way as, let's say, Maxwell formalized electromagnetism that like <laughs> some people might have thought of before that, uh, hey, like there's like lightning and electricity and magnets and like they seem kind of related, but it's unclear. And it, it might have turned out that, you know, the, the seeming relationship between them was incidental. But then it turns out that there is really just like 
four relatively simple differential equations that tie all of that phenomena together. Um, and uh, essentially, it's some, something like that we think might happen to consciousness that uh, right now, you know, we talk about <laughs> all of these exotic states of consciousness, whether it's Janus or LSD or, um, you know, like um, extreme pain or something like that. And uh, we may think of them as like very disparate kind of like algorithms. They may not necessarily have like a, a common core, but, but at QRI, essentially, we work under the assumption <laughs> that at some point we're actually going to discover a core set of equations and mathematical objects such that the different configurations of those mathematical objects will map on to each of these uh, states of consciousness. So um, we kind of like play a lot with that framework. Um, I mean, we have like candidate ideas of like what these mathematical objects are, but even without like getting into kind of like that level of rigor, this lens is still very generative in, in the sense that, for example, um, it gives us ideas for how to potentially describe uh, various states of consciousness. And um, I'll put a, a pin on this uh, to circle back to it in, in a second um, for like kind of like rough ideas for like what uh, the Brahma Viharas might be doing. But the other kind of like important piece of background is this distinction between recipe and review of a state that one thing is kind of like what are the instructions that you follow in order to cultivate a particular state of consciousness and then a different thing is essentially what is the quality of the consciousness that arises once you follow those instructions and it, it's kind of analogous to uh looking at the recipe versus the review of a, of a cake <laughs> that you that you cook right it's like the cooking instructions may actually look very very uninformative about what the actual taste of the of the resulting cake is you know adding yeast and the temperature and all of that doesn't really tell you very much about like okay what is it gonna taste unless you have a lot of experience of how those things map um so ba based on kind of like that that framework i wonder if um and I'm, i hope i'm not getting into any uh yeah uh, controversial territory or anything but uh, i i wonder if for example like um talking about uh, um, the Brahma Vihara as, as kind of like properties of the absolute might be perhaps understood as kind of a recipe uh, for those states. Um, that is kind of like your, your, if you can believe that that is the case, then like the mind doesn't raise any objections when let's say the experiential qualities of the Brahma Viharas actually start to expand into all of your experience because it, they become recognized as properties of the absolute, whether that is, you know, the case or not, but it might function as a recipe. So, well, I, I said a, a lot of things, but I, I wonder your overall reaction here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the way I, I would take it is like the instructions for the practices. The one question I'd have, though, is because these states are also non-conceptual, you know, there is the problem of conceptualizing so, you know, that's sort of built into the mathematical equation that there's a certain perspective of, of consciousness from a mind that has concept. And of course, the experiential and direct experience may be no concept. So, yeah. And, and one other point, um, yeah. with the, uh, particularly with the 
what we call the upper, the formless jhanas, which as you mentioned, the base of boundless space, the base of boundless consciousness, the base of, ba of boundless no-thingness, and the, ba and the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And from my perspective, each of those is a differentiated characteristic of the absolute. And as we go in and merge with that jhana and our consciousness and awareness gets steeped in that, and really, really the John experience is like being in a uh, radio frequency territory. And in effect, the consciousness is getting acclimated and attuned to that frequency. And only when that frequency lands sufficiently would it be possible for one to then move on to the next jhana with success. And the ultimate objective is as I present it, is what I call the ninth jhana, which is the absolute itself, that we can, after the eighth, if there's sufficient, let's say, purification of mind, then it's possible to, and I have led students to access the absolute directly. So they're sitting in source, they're merged in source. And some of that opens up to the experiences in Theravadan Buddhism called cessation, which is the same as nirvana or nirvana. It's the uh, ceasing of all mentality and materiality, all consciousness and awareness, a lights out experience. Yeah, no, this is, this is uh, really excellent to hear. Uh, um, there's so, so, many, so many threads, but I'll, I'll choose the, the most salient one. Um, so remember I put a pin on kind of like, okay, from the Quelia formalist perspective, like what, what a loving kindness might be. Um, so, and now you mentioned about kind of like tuning into a particular frequency for, uh, yeah, essentially the, the various jhanas. Um, so at, at QRI, essentially, we take very seriously this idea that there's actually like frequencies of experience. Um, and we think essentially they map onto what are called the connectum-specific harmonic waves of a, of a nervous system. So essentially the nervous system similar to like any mechanical object that has like waves, mechanical waves that propagate, um, it will have its uh, corresponding harmonics, which essentially are all of the ways in which the waves will feed an integer number of times in the particular shape. Um, except that in, in the case of the brain is not actually mechanical waves, it is electromagnetic waves um, that essentially yeah, follow the excitation inhibition wavefront um, <laughs> that describes the behavior of collect near collectives of neurons. Um, in a kind of like one of the early theory papers that we presented here, uh, it's called um, uh, the, the Neuroscience for Meditation um, by Mike Johnson, one of my colleagues. Um, essentially, yeah, he hypothesizes that a lot of what meditation is doing is essentially avoiding um, energy to get stuck in particular constructs, which would be kind of like non-linearities in the system, and instead channeling that energy to just the natural harmonic resonances of the nervous system. Um, and kind of like a metaphor for this is uh, if you have a tuning fork and it has like some mud in it, um, in a sense like meditating uh, and activating the, the central harmonics of your nervous system would be kind of like shaking off the, the mod off of it <laughs> and just kind of ends up being kind of like a cleaner, cleaner resonance. Um, so based on, yeah, your interview with, uh, 
Guru Viking, it it sounded like uh, a lot of practitioners in Zen maybe would do that for kind of the third chakra kind of stomach area, but maybe not necessarily for the, the heart area. How, how does this uh, yeah, metaphor sit with you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's fairly accepted in the Zen tradition that there's a lot of emphasis on emptiness, what we call emptiness. Um, I use the word absence rather than emptiness because emptiness is implies nothing and absence implies something, but it's just not quite here. Uh, so, but the one place that's lacking is there, there are no practices, there are no heart practices. And there's several Zen teachers who I work with and friends with, and we're of the opinion that that would be a wonderful thing to introduce into the Zen world. And so we're hoping to start doing some retreats that do that. And I've been teaching several Zen masters, the Brahma Viharas, for their own practice, and then hopefully able to show them how to teach it with folks, and then uh, they can do some of that too. So I think, but it's that balance because really, in the absolute, the way that I I present it, experience it is that there's sort of two functions: one unmanifest, which is really more the emptiness quality, and one the manifest, which is more presence and love and the manifestation, you know, really function of it. So, but it's the balance. And like in the Theravadan, they got a lot of depth in the presence and love through the Brahma Viharas, but less with the emptiness. And the Zen folks have more of the emptiness, but less of the presence and love. So the more each side develops of the other, the more you're gonna get somebody who's more steeped in the absolute. And that gives a, hopefully an invitation for experiences like jhana, like, uh, you know, awakening experiences, things like that. Yeah, fascinating. But that would tie in, let me jump for one thing, one more thing. I think that would yeah. tie into your harmonics perspective that there needs to be sort of a development of, of, let's say, both functions of the absolute in order for us to really have a, a kind of a wholesome entry. <laughs> that makes sense. And also, I think the landing, how it would land in our consciousness would be different based upon how we how we enter and where we we drink from let's say yeah that makes sense um uh, yeah an additional thing about the um the quality so <clears throat> uh one thing is going to be the frequency and that it will be highly correlated with kind of like what where in the body <laughs> you actually have it and there might be like some very deep reasons um why i mean it's similar to kind of a musical instrument uh, different parts of the musical instrument will have essentially different frequencies when you have like a shorter, you know, guitar string or tighter guitar string or thinner string, you will have like higher frequencies. Um, so, you know, we've done a little bit of work of like actually taking others, oh, this device is called a saw pack <laughs> that vibrates um, to the tune of music, but also you can tune it to whatever frequency you want and putting it on different parts of the body and um, you know, in a, in a blinded way, like asking somebody where in their body a particular frequency resonates more. And yeah, it does seem to be actually there's like stronger resonances with particular frequencies uh, across the body. Um, with like, uh, roughly speaking, kind of higher frequencies uh, corresponding like closer to the head and lower frequencies below. Um, but uh, it seems to me that like another piece of the puzzle is essentially what is the wave form characteristic and um this became pretty apparent when i 
started cultivating uh, Meta a couple of years ago, um, that it, it felt to me that um, Meta had this very kind of like soft wave quality. Um, that if you think of the quality of our, of our attention, um, and these may or may not be a metaphor, but it's kind of like sending waves of energy to objects of perception within your experience. Um, and then the way in which the, that those waves of energy bounce off of them, essentially both conditions what the property of the object will be, but also um, gives you information about that object. Um, and it makes you kind of makes it ring in a particular way. Um, I got the pretty strong impression that a lot of like what loving kindness is, is kind of like developing a sensibility to essentially send waves of energy that have like a very soft, what would be called a attack. So waveforms, one way of describing the envelope of a waveform is attack, decay, sustain, release. It's called a ADSR in a, in <laughs> a lot of musicians are familiar with this. Um, which actually distinguishes, let's say, the quality of sound of different musical instruments. That is, is not only kind of like the weight of all of the harmonics, which is one property of instruments, but it's also you know, how fast the sound comes on and how slowly it, it decays. And uh, yeah, I got the impression that something like a characteristic of loving kindness is that the attack is very smooth. So you're not actually kind of uh, hitting the objects of perception you're more kind of like slowly tuning into them. Is, is that something you, you could relate to? Well, I'd say a little differently in that I think when doing the Brahma Viharas, Metta and others, part of what's happening is that we're getting into the resonance of that unconditioned heart quality. And so that's where that smoothness would come in, I think, and the wave uh, business you're talking about. But But there's also a softening of distinction, meaning, I'm doing metta for you, you're becoming softer, I'm becoming softer. So there's a unity, a oneness that's coming in to where I can't tell if I'm doing it for myself or you, but there's metta transpiring in our field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the other characteristic um, also worth mentioning is um, uh, this concept is called um, impedance matching. Uh, most people know it from uh, electrical engineering, uh, but essentially, it is this, um, yeah, this overall idea that like you could actually have like very high levels of energy and resonance, but if you don't have an intermediate medium that allows the essentially the spreading of energy between them, um, they're going to be like fairly non-interactive. So mm -hmm. the the metaphor I often use to explain this is um, if you have like a guitar string that is uh, essentially just like um, tied in at let's say the two ends of a, of a uh, of the walls of a room um and you pluck it it's gonna be very very quiet um if the guitar string on the other hand is attached to an actual acoustic guitar it's gonna sound a lot more loud and this is very puzzling because hey the amount of energy that you put into the guitar string is the same in either direction so it's kind of like puzzling how like a you know musical instrument would actually add energy to it and the answer is that it doesn't actually add energy to it in, in any way. Um, what is happening, though, is that the energy gets dissipated more quickly because the energy of the string essentially makes the entire object vibrate. And then the entire object vibrating has much bigger surface area to interact with the surrounding air. Um, 
so that would be a phenomenon of uh, impedance matching, uh, where essentially there's an intermediate medium that is essentially synchronizing the air and the guitar string. So it's, it's felt to me that, I mean, both on various kinds of uh, uh, psychotropic substances um, and various kinds of meditation, but especially the Brahma Viharas, it feels uh, subjectively to me that like, you might be also cultivating higher impedance matching within your nervous system. So essentially making it easier for your representations of let's say people or representation of, of objects to essentially softly loosen their uh, boundaries yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and ultimately synchronizing <laughs> in the resonant frequency. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, but that, that's a lot in the because a lot of this is softening the sense of who I am. It's softening my sense of body boundaries. So where I am moving in more into the mystery, into that unified field that we can know know something of, but we can't always conceptualize it. So that's you know part of the mystery of it all, which is beautiful too. Yeah. Mm, yeah okay that's awesome like um uh i guess one one thing i might say um it's uh yeah you've referenced kind of like yeah the difficulty of conceptualizing a non-conceptual experience <laughs> right. um we i mean i i would describe myself as a epistemological optimist mm -hmm. either like you know a lot of these things that seem like impossible <laughs> Uh, I think it, they might just like be really tricky or like non-trivial, but maybe maybe possible. And I mean, of course, like I recognize if you're actually conceptualizing, you know, creating a model <laughs> that's different from the experience itself. Like that's right. uh, that's and definitely that, the case. That's yeah. the crux of it. Now I do have a little bit of a a, a wild card for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I had students begin reporting for a few years that when I teach, they were feeling a transmission. And so I decided to see if I could incorporate that more into my teaching. And so I started doing some guided meditations in like there's one on Guru Viking absolute peace meditation. And it's, it's just what I'm doing is I'm describing what's happening in my consciousness in real time. And, um, and I'm finding in like I just finished a retreat in Croatia and I did it probably three times a day, I did a guided meditation. And virtually everybody can follow right along and are, are deeply impacted with whatever it is is arising, if, you know, because it's in our field. So, I mean, it's really curious to me. I have no understanding of why it works. If there's no technique to it, it just happens. But there must be some symmetry and, as you would say, smoothness of waves in the field for people to be able to follow. And what's particularly interesting is some people are, are brand new to meditation. So it's not even dependent upon their having uh, enough experience to have some of these meditative practices or experiences. Yeah, that's, go ahead, Wiesen. Yeah, I, I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd add uh, coming out of, you know, Shins and Young's like unified mindfulness teacher training that this is something that is heavily emphasized within the training that as you're guiding a meditation, you must always actually be doing the meditation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I'd like to hear Andres's thoughts on this, but the, the kind of uh, 
empathic matching that can happen between two people, uh, even, even with eyes closed, you can kind of entrain yourself to another person um, in that process of, of guidance and in certain circumstances kind of reach beyond what your normal capacity would be. That's been my experience, both teaching and uh, receiving uh, guidance, that, that that is a phenomenon that, that, that happens. So I'd love to hear what, what you think is going on there, uh, Andres. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, I'll say th three three things that can be said about this. And the the first one is, um, I mean, the discussion of like um, how would you tell uh, subjectively whether this is, let's say, like synchronizing with your internal representation of your meditation teacher um, and using it as kind of like an internal metronome, but you know, the transmission being an illusion versus there actually being some kind of uh, real transmission be, uh, besides that. The second thing is um, essentially this does seem like very testable and I would love to actually run run a an experiment. And um, I think like the main concern is that, of course, like as you're, you know, guiding uh, a session, I'm sure like the actual state of consciousness in which you are will modify your body language and the tone of voice and, you know, the the attack, the case, sustained release envelope of, you know, your voice and, and things like that. Um, uh, but I think like that's experimentally not difficult to overcome. I mean, essentially what we could do is um, have you record a guided session um, and then, oh, but, and do it while you were in the state, um, like being truthful about your experience. And then we could run a study where essentially in one condition, you follow along uh, with those states of consciousness as people hear the recording. Um, in synchrony. So you're hearing your own recording and they're hearing their own recording, the same recording at the same time versus the other condition where everybody hears the same recording, but you are specifically in a different state. <laughs> you're like listening to rock music or, or something like that, just to <laughs> make sure you're actually not following along the, the meditation. And uh, if there is a kind of like actual transmission, we would expect there to be like a difference in the effect size of the meditation effects on on the people. Um, would that be a study you'd be interested in conducting at some point? <laughs> yeah, we could explore it to see how that would work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but but yeah, this is definitely something I've heard reported. I mean, I was very, very skeptical at first, but I, I've heard it from like, yeah, enough like credible people and people having like pretty unusual experiences of, uh, uh, yeah, like for example, like in monasteries, uh, I've heard like sometimes they identify somebody who kind of like works as a radiator and it, it might not be somebody who's actually the most talented or the most attained but they somehow have this quality of being able to radiate a state and you know they might position that person kind of like closer to the center of the room <laughs> because it just like makes meditation easier for everybody or something of that nature um and uh it, it, i guess yeah the the last thing is like you know exploring like possible mechanisms of action here and uh I think like there really would be kind of like two overarching camps. Like one is, is this an electromagnetic phenomenon or is this a quantum phenomenon? <laughs> and uh, yeah, of course, if I start introducing quantum mechanics, my credibility is going to go down um, all the way to zero. Um, you know, it's very, very hard to say something like meaningful and rigorous there. But uh, with electromagnetism, there are things that you could expect. Like um, if we find, for example, the uh, frequency range in which the brain is operating or where these like frequencies are operating 
there might be a way of essentially introducing intentional noise between between people with a, an actual electromagnetic radiator between you and and them and that in principle would uh, disrupt the the um, uh, the transmission so it would be an interesting way of testing it sounds interesting <laughs> um, so I guess yeah to to kind of um, uh, put put that on the table the um, uh, conceptualizing non-conceptual experiences and maybe the the absolute um, there's this distinction that uh, is is done in neuroscience and uh, uh, psychology which is the difference between attention and awareness uh, so awareness is like going on all the time but then attention is kind of like picking specific features of your experience and binding them together um, and something that I have noticed or I also hypothesized as kind of like one of the paradigms that uh, arrived. Um, essentially, whenever there is attention, um, there is uh, essentially this resonance between attention and the awareness field, the field of awareness. So it's not really only that, you know, you're kind of like paying attention to something, but there's usually kind of like a, a background um, that that attention is resonating with and is carrying the information of it. And maybe this is kind of like easier to see when you have like these very highly concentrated states where let's say the entirety of, of the background is resonating with a point. And it's kind of like there's a duality that yes, you're absorbed into one point, but then that point is actually also resonating with the entire field. And there's kind of this uh, back and forth. Um, or there's also like, states of consciousness where actually awareness and attention um, actually can like uh, switch positions, one can become the other. So you could like be paying attention to one point and is resonating with the rest of your experience, but then slowly growing the area you're paying attention to until it encompasses half of your experience. And when it encompasses half of your experience, essentially you're gonna have like two sides of your experience resonating with each other Mm -hmm. um, and then if you keep expanding it, then you can turn essentially what was the awareness field into what is now an attention point. So um, in that sense, I essentially yeah, think of uh, attention and awareness as like codependent phenomena um, that essentially involve uh, resonance. And um, it seems to me that potentially like conceptualization is really an attention phenomena. You're kind of uh, making these uh, uh, perceptual constructs and embedding information in them. Um, but actually a lot of like the, the juicy quality of your experience is in the awareness field, which there's an epistemological difficulty here because by the moment you actually pay attention to it, you're, uh, you reify it and you're changing the quality of it. So um, I guess this, this is kind of the conceptual framework I would use for like sense of something like the absolute, like why it's very much like a real experience you could have you know the moment you pay attention to it and you try to describe it actually you're like breaking it apart um but you could still study it in 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 various ways um yeah i wonder how you might react to all of this <laughs> yeah i'm so hard i i don't follow all all that you're talking about you know i'm not that educated in that but i i think it's really just an interesting discussion and i think particularly what struck me was your the interface of the uh, awareness and attention like i i have a in my one book um, demystifying awakening i talk about how with awakening 
that uh, that there's a I just made up this thing called the 51% rule that if 51% of consciousness has the direct experience of true nature of the absolute and identifies with it sees this is me then there's a different kind of experience where true nature becomes the foundation rather than the personality from then on so there's something really interesting in that that 51% place or more but you know the fulcrum just tips and and it can be very uh, revolutionary in its impact I have a couple of students since I've came out with my book, I've had three students who have Kensho experiences, awakening experiences, one on the retreat I just did. So now I'm helping them sort of guide through the next steps, which is where there are times when they're completely steeped in true nature and times when they flip into the personality, even though it's like there's no gas running that engine, it's still sputtering. And so it's back and forth and back and forth, reconciling the two and recognizing sort of the dysfunction of the personality uh, activity to where that has to be liberated for the true nature to really begin to function in that individual consciousness. At least that's how I'd frame it. You might see it and name it differently. <laughs> that's fascinating. I mean, that that suggests there might be a, a possibly something in the direction of like a kind of like a center of mass of, of your whole experience. and. If, if yeah, there's kind of like, you know, 51% or more of a certain quality of attention um, that might recenter essentially where, where your position within your entire experience. I guess I intuitively I visualize it as kind of like, um, yeah, the, the resonant modes of a molecule or something like that, that like there's actually like a resonance mode, which is like the lowest harmonic, which is how the entire molecule vibrates and maybe you know, you probably had first kind of like pieces of it vibrating in a like way. Um, but there's a critical phase transition that happens when um, you actually get the flavor of the resonance of the entire molecule to actually have that quality. Um, and yeah, definitely, I guess it uh, resonates with the personal experience. Um, um, at least in like kind of kind of like for example changing your your mood or like exiting a a depression <laughs> there, there, there does seem to be kind of a phase transition maybe at the 51 percent <laughs> intuitively yeah this is this is super fascinating i i wonder if i might just in, inject two like cases of this kind of threshold uh, of this 51 percent so uh i don't have very much experience of the kind of jhana that is described uh, by stephen and in the visuddhi maga but I have had uh, experiences which you know, might be on the edge or I was there for a couple of seconds. And it is that kind of being sucked in and, and really just merging. Your entire experience is that, that, that quality. You know, if it's, you're merging with a nimitta, um, it's, it's just that. Uh, you know, the body, everything is just gone. You're kind of sucked in and totally merged. And it, I think that is kind of a threshold effect. And I'm hoping Stephen will be able to comment better on this because I really don't have that much experience with it. Um, and then the other uh, thing is uh, the kind of non-dual experience where the uh, distinction between a subject in here and a world out there, how that can kind of uh, collapse as well, I think is one of these threshold effects where maybe there might be some synchrony between attention and awareness, or I suppose how I would describe it, and Andres, maybe you can comment on this, is that 
there isn't any distinction between attention and awareness or the movement of attention is kind of experienced as a movement of the larger field. And maybe you could both comment on, on that. I just wanted to, to interject there. I suppose mainly for my own benefit, I'm curious what, what you would both say about, about all that. Yeah, I guess I'll jump in um, with the with the John experience. You know, I, I think that's that's the common experience is that there there's no normal sense of self. There's full awareness and perception, but there's no sense of self. There's no thought, so it's non conceptual direct experience. And yet, people have uniform experiences. They'll be a little different, but for the most part, the majority of it is is identical. And that's part of the way that there can be sort of a quality control because the teachers withhold some of the things that will be experienced there and the student needs to reveal those you know hidden parts in order for us to be confirming what's happening i mean there's also the energetic resonance where where for me i can feel when somebody's in that territory just the vibration is different and i'm familiar with that tone so i know in that way as well um, and one other thing I wanted to introduce, I, I, I don't know if you've read any of the, the uh, Carlos Castaneda material, the, if that's maybe either one of you, it probably, I probably outdate you there with that. But uh, anyway, he was an anthropology student who worked with a, a shaman and wrote about it and it was quite popular uh, 1970 on. But anyway, one of the, the main point I'm making from this is they talked a lot about a shift in what they called an assemblage point and that the shift would actually open one to essentially different universes or different worlds or dramatically different experiences where the rules of reality were different. And I think, you know, the, the more I practice and work with students, the more I think there is something to that shift because there is like there's a shift of sort of where we're anchored in our consciousness. And if it anchors someplace else, that viewpoint can be dramatically different from our normal perception and our normal, actually our normal view of reality can change dramatically. So anyway, I just want to introduce that as well, because I think there's something interesting about the shamanic practices and, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about the use of psychedelics. I don't know whether they actually help or whether they don't help. But I know people report benefit from them some, and some people have had trouble. So it's you know just to say I'm I'm not a <laughs> I don't have an opinion either way about it. Okay, and I mean I guess to to follow up on that, there's a <laughs> definitely three three substances. I'd be curious to hear your thought as well. Maybe you already shared everything, but, but I mean a, a lot of um, um, uh, Buddhists uh, who lived in the seventies, I guess. Uh, do, do seem to you know a very is a very, very story of like saying like um yeah i mean essentially they uh tried lsd at some point had like some kind of a non-dual experience and then they realized that like okay like there's probably something to meditation and then they went through a meditation path but like a lot of people cite kind of like early psychedelic experiences as pretty formative or at least like something that pointed them in a new direction mm -hmm. um and there's like yeah I don't know how much you might know about these uh, three drugs, but like the, the ones that I'd be the most curious about is um, LSD, MDMA, and 5-MeO-DMT. I, I wonder if you've heard uh, uh, about the last one, but... Uh, is yeah. that the toad one? Yes, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know the, the name, but I know it as <laughs> the toad phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, I've had I have students who have done all those. Um, some of them report all sorts of experiences from full jhanas to awakening experiences. The, the one difference is their energy resonance about it is different. Ah. So if they talk about jhana, there's just a vibration in them that's not the same as somebody who does it meditatively. So again, I'm not saying they're not having the experience. I'm not with them when it happens, but just the reporting of it, there's just a little different frequency, how it feels to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can comment on, I mean, on why <laughs> at a theoretical level that might happen. Uh, again, this is pretty speculative, but um, the way I might describe this is that like, okay, like why would a psychedelic make it easier for you to access, like say like Janik-like qualities of experience so the way we think about it at QRI is that many substances, one of the things they do is that they change the um, wave propagation dynamics in your nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, and like our nervous system is like finely tuned towards our natural wave propagation dynamics. So the moment you introduce a new wave propagation dynamic, um, essentially a lot of your pre-existing constructs will not actually synchronize or get in tune with it. So all of a sudden you may actually be able to disentangle from them and experience the resonant modes of your nervous system in a clean way, except that they're the resonant modes of this altered nervous system. Right. Um, so metaphorically, it's kind of like adding, let's say like molasses to a uh, musical instrument or something like that is like, like maybe you can access those resonant modes more easily, but they're not the resonant modes of your normal nervous system. So I wonder, yeah, that might explain the, the, the resonant frequency is slightly different. Um, it, it also like um, one of the fascinating pieces of research um, that came out about connecting specific harmonic wave analysis is that LSD um, seems to actually increase the amplitude of all of the harmonics, but especially of the higher frequencies. And there's kind of a, change in what is the median frequency of your nervous system in a higher direction and um i don't know it's one of those things where like you know hippies have been saying forever like oh lsd gives you access to like higher frequencies or something like that but hey like neuroscience is sh showing that yeah there's probably something something to it um and and finally yeah connecting it with kind of a other psychedelics um one piece of research that we have at qri is we created this tool for visualizing what's called um, visual tracers, which is like if you take LSD or something and you move your hand around, you might see kind of a lot of like lingering copies kind of uh, stay, stay for longer. Essentially the decay of experience becomes kind of like these like fatter curve, things like last longer in your experience. Um, and we've asked people with a lot of psychedelic experience to essentially try to replicate the tracers they see on different drugs. And it does emerge that each drug has kind of like its own frequency range where like, for example, LSD tends to produce like flickering frequencies of around like 15 to 20 Hertz. Whereas like something like DMT um, produces uh, flickering frequencies of like 30 Hertz or more. And yeah, I mean, subjectively as often reported is people try DMT and they'll say like, yeah, this is like LSD, but like a higher frequency. and. Yeah, now we have like at least some tools to kind of uh, to explain that. But uh, it, it, it does seem to me then that, yeah, I mean, essentially, if you do want to have kind of like a sustainable 
long-term access to yeah kind of these absolute type experiences uh potentially um the most important is going to be to find the actual you know harmonic resonant modes of your natural nervous system unaltered by by these substances um, right yeah and that's what i see the folks that have used this even if they have made contact as they believe they have when they come to say a meditation retreat there's a period where they almost need to purify their consciousness a little more I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but like they need to do it so that they can then access that same territory meditatively, because it's kind of like it's a little bit cloudy when they start is how it feels to me. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. The one I wonder one exception. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure about this, but um, 5MEO DMT, the, the toad one in particular, does seem to be extremely clean in its uh, effect. Um, although I have like a some slight um, uh, contradictory information here with, with um, Roger Thiesdale, which is a, a young guy who claims to be a fourth path. And uh, uh, he's been on the show with uh, Winston. Uh, he says that 5-MeO-DMT, at least in his experience, um, does feel like it has like a slightly different frequency than his normal uh, everyday type of awakening experience. But then we also have a uh, Shenzhen Young, um, who actually recently tried 5-MeO DMT, um, and the way he described it, he said it was like completely undistinguishable from his um, the kind of like ego death that he had after like a hundred days of very rigorous Vajrayana uh, practice. Um, so essentially, Shenzhen Young thinks he's actually the real deal, whereas like Roger Thiesel is thinks he's slightly different. <laughs> Um, but, but of all the psychedelics, I would say, um, yeah, 5-MeO-DMT, the, the toad one seems to me the most promising when it comes to maybe catalyzing experiences of the absolute, um, just the, the depth to which you can go, it's really, really extraordinary that like on LSD, you may have like experiences of like becoming one with everything, but it doesn't seem to go as deep in just like the degree to which you disidentify with absolutely any any form of perception whereas on, on 5-MeO DMT there is a feeling that like <laughs> you can't actually go any 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 further than than where it takes you like there's almost kind of like it's, it's hitting the maximum on on some level yeah go ahead. now I, I haven't taken 5-MeO uh, but from reports and what you've written about it and what I've heard other people say I think 5-MeO might have more in common uh, I'm sure it's actually different subtly um, or maybe significantly, but I think it has, might have more in common with formless absorptions. Um, so there's no, there's no sense of a body. There's no sense of body boundary. Uh, there's just very little going on and there might be a sense of, you know, infinite. I mean, you, you, you can fill in the phenomenology better than I can, um, but it's, it, it is a kind of boundless non-dual type experience without any sense of body or subject and object. Uh, and yet, uh, you said you, you can't go any deeper. I think, you know, uh, from, you know, a traditional Buddhist perspective, well, actually there's, there is just one, one step further than that, which would be the cessation type experience or some of the deeper, uh, formless absorptions. And, uh, yeah, I thought I'd interject with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like if you take enough of MEO DMT, uh, you experience a whiteout and like it, it might be a cessation potentially. I mean, it, yeah, I, I don't know, but like, it's, a uh, 
it's possible it may like be maxing maxing out sort of like the coherence of your nervous system or something like that and there's like a a global maximum <laughs> and it just takes you there um but but yeah i mean like in terms of like formless absorption like a common report on 5-MeO-DMT is like as you're coming down you, you have this weird feeling of realizing like wait there's a world that has beings like you were just so <laughs> deeply gone in into kind of the formless absorption like you completely had forgotten that like even such a thing as like there being like you know <laughs> a universe with entities or anything of the sort like that's totally gone <laughs> um you're yeah almost yeah this feeling of like um uh gone to such an extent that it's almost as if you had never been born is like how some people describe it um can can they repeat any of those experiences without the drug after having a drug experience so definitely um this there's a, something interesting here which is uh, at qri we sometimes um do this thing it's called phenomenology club where like bring we bring together people who have had like really extreme experiences in one way or another and uh don't ask me why but like by now i actually know four people who have taken five meal every day for at least one month um two of them actually like having done it like every day for six months and of those four people two of them uh report actually having like um experience like uh permanent shifts in their consciousness um but it's not something that happened after like one or two experiences but it was kind of like you needed the momentum of like doing it every day for for a month uh and one of them reports kind of um like i think it's like fourth path like that he said like that like he had meditated a lot before but like the 30-day 5-meo experience is what actually pushed him over the edge uh to a permanent shift um Again, uh, all of these needs to be yeah cross cross examined, and it would be great to have like yeah people like you interview or or feel <laughs> feel them to know if that's uh, that's for real. But um, and I mean yeah, based on five meo DMT uh, experiences, it wouldn't surprise me that if you if you do it a lot, like may actually give you some permanent access to something. Um, people also report like um, reactivations, especially on that substance that like. If you've taken 5-MeO-DMT like three or more times or something like that, oftentimes you may wake up at night just like suddenly in that state, kind of like fully reactivated and um, seems to be associated with uh, with sleep in particular, like makes that happen. Are there, are there any downsides to taking the drug or people that shouldn't use it or have adverse I th reactions? I th so it is the drug that can give you the worst bad trip as well. I guess like that's really important to emphasize that like, um just that it, as it can create kind of like the, the most clean kind of pure consciousness type experience uh well i don't know if the most clean but like at least a, a variant of it um um resistance to it um subliminal resistance to merging with the absolute can be such a unpleasant experience that yeah some people become like traumatized and they never want to take the drug again and you know, they swear off any kind of psychedelic for the rest of their life because it was just such a horrible experience. Um, and predicting how, like, to whom that's going to happen is obviously very difficult. But mm -hmm. the main factor uh, that I have identified with, like, a lot of interviews of people who've taken the substance a lot is that the main kind of uh, uh, feature that 
at least for them, like predicts whether they'll have a good or bad experience has to do with uh, the rate of administration. That essentially, if you take a very big hit of 5-MeO DMT, all of a sudden, um, it's kind of like this huge rush of energy can kind of like leave an imprint. And then you're like working through kind of the, the wake of that rush of energy. But if you're titrating the dose slowly over the course of like, let's say 10, 20 minutes, then you kind of like have like time to acclimatize to it. And yeah, I mean, I suspect like therapeutic protocols will probably involve like uh, kind of like self-directed titration with an, um, an in injection pump or something like that, where you have full control of how much of the substance you're getting and how fast. Okay. Uh, yeah, Winston, <laughs> you were going to say something. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't heard the thing about the sleep, uh, which is which is interesting because I also know uh, someone um, who studied with Shyla Catherine, I think, so doing the kind of um, Visuddhi Maga type jhana, who reports uh, not uncommonly waking up mid sequence uh, in the middle of the night, kind of in uh, one of the first four uh, form jhanas, um, especially during or recently following a retreat. So that's kind of interesting, an interesting parallel. But um, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't. I, I guess my sense of this question that Stephen was asking is, do these people have intentional access? So like, can they voluntarily shift in the course of their day? You know, they, they sit down, can they get into that kind of formless absorption uh, from, from a baseline? And I, hadn't, I haven't heard of people being able to do that, which would correlate with my understanding of other psychedelics that it's kind of a, a peak experience that then doesn't afford that much re-entry, if you like. Yeah. So, so the drug is really doing a lot of the work then, in other words, it's not opening a permanent channel where, where like meditatively what we see is as people access these jhanas repeatedly, there gets to be such a path that's been cut up the mountain that they can, they can access that regularly on similar setting, which we setting, whether at home or in a center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I have not. Her, I haven't heard like yeah reported like specifically that yeah they can sit down and experience that at, at will. Um, and one of them yeah the one of the one of the two who actually took it like every day for six months. Um, I mean he did it in the um, uh, Advanta Vedanta I, tradition. Um, so like his emphasis was like on on oneness in in particular. I mean and he reported he experienced like some some shifts but um uh, that yeah i mean meditation retreats actually did did more for for him than than that um one interesting thing is a uh, essentially like one way of like describing 5-meo dmt especially if you don't go all the way is um accessing all of the different flavors of silence that like you may experience for example a 5-meo dmt experience which is like perfect kind of like feeling of like nothingness in the visual field. And like that might be kind of the object of attention. Then in another session, you may experience like auditory silence, just like the most clean silence, but like, you know, very <laughs> a huge depth of silence. Or you may experience kind of like bodily peace, just kind of like this perfect. So um, that is also like one reason why we find it uh, so interesting uh, at QRI is because it, it also has kind of this connection of uh, symmetry and smoothness and also like reported like sense of well-being that comes with it. Would, would there be people that it's not indicated for? 
Yeah, I wonder. I mean, but I definitely would advise against if you have like, yeah, schizophrenia or like maybe a lot of uh, latent mental illness in, in, in your family or something like that. But uh, yeah, we, we don't really have like much data on that substance. Okay. Yeah, I just have seen the folks that I know, the ones that, uh, you know, today there's a lot of people who are suffering with anxiety and depression. I mean, a growing number of folks. And those folks also seem to be the ones that have tried the different psychedelics. It seems to impact them a little differently, where it kind of leaves them a little foggier in some ways afterwards. I mean, there could be clarity in the experience, but I don't know, because, perhaps because of their ongoing depression, anxiety, it's a different landing than, say, someone who doesn't routinely encounter those qualities. Yeah, it, it's for 5-MeO in particular, I mean, like the typical reaction is one of um, like if, you, if people do it in a shamanic setting uh, and they have a good experience. And I mean, roughly speaking, we're talking about like 95% of people, uh, you know, before like, yeah, the experience was very positive. Um, you even if they had like a lot of anxiety and depression, essentially, they tend to describe it as kind of like a nervous system reset and like they got like a new lease on on life. Uh, it's common description. Um, but but yeah, I mean, LSD, I'm not so sure that like, I mean, if you suffer from like generalized anxiety, LSD might just give you panic attacks. So, right. yeah, <laughs> and that's part of the concern that I have for those folks. And some of them have had that. Apparently, they tried these things and it did land them and they just stayed in heightened anxiety for hours. Um, so yeah, I think you have to be careful with terms of what kind of stability you have um, if we're introducing some of these things or really, really investigate, you know, find out, talk to someone like you who can give them some, some of us, some understanding. Yeah. Uh, I guess, yeah, the last note on this is that um, it, it also seems that the dose matters uh, enormously, especially for 5-MeO DMT in that like really it's almost kind of like five different drugs <laughs> depending on what dose you you take and like extremely small doses like very very small doses of 5-MeO DMT seem to me like inherently very meditative in that like they settle everything down and it's kind of like this very calm and relaxing experience that doesn't feel like intoxicated it's a uh, very very strange but like very clean kind of like settling down and i suspect probably when it comes to like interface between psychedelics and meditation probably low dose 5-meo dmt at a retreat might be one of the kind of like ways in which it might actually be synergistic and yeah not not cause the cloudiness that you're describing but yeah <laughs> yeah well that's true too because the other aspect that what comes to mind is it's also going to be a particular controlled experience if you're mm -hmm. at a retreat center, you've got, you know, the person doesn't have the usual stimulus of family and friends and computer and phones and all that. So there is kind of a cleaner experience in terms of silence. So, so that would be, it would strike me that that would be kind of beneficial conditions as well. Yeah. Um, one, one topic, uh, yeah, uh, I mentioned I wanted to briefly touch upon and like, I wonder what your thoughts on this is um, is a uh, yeah the Brahma Viharas in the context of kind of a an adversarial relationship um, um, which yeah I think it can be like kind of a crazy head trip and unfortunately like for example 
um, somebody might tell you um, that the reason you're doing Brahma Vihara practice is in order to hide from the ways in which you are evil, for example. Mm-hmm. And like it's um, could potentially be difficult to uh, cultivate it under those circumstances, especially if you actually really care about the other person. Like, I, I mean, I want, that's just one example of kind of the, the difficulties that might happen if there's actually some kind of adversarial component to it. And I mean, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that matter. Well, where I, where I see that come up the most would be in terms of the application of daily life, meaning you've got a partner who you love and you're with, but you're having a friction exchange, you're having an argument, disagreement. And so part of the Brambihara practice would be to try to bring that into the situation you're in. So one of the first things, the way that I teach it is to work with the equanimity and which is really accepting the truth. So if you and I are arguing right now, and, and if one of us or both of us start orienting towards that, just accepting the fact this is what's happening. We're having this disagreement. You know, we care about each other, but there's this friction. Then that at least gets us away from the different inner resistances we have, you know, pull this, push that to get the optimum distance. And then once there's acceptance, then we can move into things like moving into how it feels, what we call in Buddhism dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness up to suffering. And we get in touch with the suffering, how I feel a lot of pain that we're having this disagreement. It hurts. And when we have these things, I feel the history, the past, and then project into the future. And by doing that, I'm by being in touch with the suffering directly, I'm also inviting the quality of compassion, the quality of true nature to come forward and help hold it. It doesn't solve it or take it away, but it helps hold the fact that I'm in this turmoil Right, we're in this conflict, and it helps then soften some of some of my stances, which would be a little more strident in the course of an argument. So I'm softening, the field is softening, and I'm probably starting to feel more about my caring for the other rather than my my judgment and anger. And so that right there sort of progresses it to where even this is all done non-verbally, we've now created a different environment in which to interact. Mm-hmm. interesting yeah so i guess I, equanimity to start <laughs> to accept the conditions of the disagreement or the difficulty well and landing here because landing so here. often we're in our heads we're planning what we're going to say we're, we're we're playing again what we just said but this is this is landing here in this dynamic mm-hmm. okay adding a twist to this what if the other person is very anti-meditation like they they might think you know meditation is a kind of brainwashing or or a way to kind of uh, um convince yourself that you're better than you are or like you know whatever story they may have against meditation and and they think that if you bring something like loving kindness or equanimity they think you're uh tricking them <laughs> you're actually uh changing the topic or or something like that um, it could yeah. be all done non-verbally. I could be doing all this without you knowing a thing of what I'm doing, nor would I require you to necessarily participate. I'm saying some couples, they both know it, where, where others, it's one or the other. And that's mm. one of the ways I tell students how to gauge how well you're doing with the Brahma Viharas, are your relationships improving? And if they are, typically <laughs> that means you're landing more and more in the Brahma Viharas. 
Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that makes me think of, yeah, maybe coming up with a overall relationship quality score. Maybe, there might be something like this in, a, <laughs> in psychology, but as a way of tracking your progress in Brahma Viharas <laughs> over months. And uh, just to briefly circle back, and I know we're uh, probably past the, past the time, but uh, um, what, what would you recommend to people who suffer from psychopathy or sociopathy? Um, I, I'm not sure what those are. Who may be like self-aware and maybe. Um, people have trouble with self-aware. Yeah, or like, I guess like yeah, people who. Is that what you're saying? Or, uh, no, uh, people who suffer from sociopathy or psychopathy or like, um, essentially people who have like high levels of the dark triad, like very Machiavellic, um, sadistic, and um, I forget what the, the last one is. Um, uh so people like the the people that some of your your students are helping in prison uh who have a very difficult time accessing uh these these heart qualities is there any advice for that type of person is it possible in the end for them to contact these these qualities um or is there some other type of meditation that might you know bring that in uh or open a door to those qualities i don't know if you have any uh, experience with that directly yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, it seems that they are able to access it. One of the ways that I teach it is because it's a quality of our true nature and it stems from the absolute, it isn't conditioned. So meaning a lot of us exclude ourselves because we think, well, I've done these bad things. You know, I've done horrible things. I don't qualify to go here. And, and so there's a kind of self-exclusion, a self-judgment that keeps them out. And so part of my teaching is that there's no, the, the, un, the unconditioned quality of the absolute doesn't care about anything, any of that. That's all human conceptual framing. This is a pure love that loves everything equally, which is God's favorite tree. You know, there, there can't be one. So in the same way, how can that love be conditioned that's here? So we're all equally entitled. So nothing you, you've done can exclude you. And you have every much a birthright to this as everybody else. And so that seems to help quite a lot because that's one of the ways we exclude ourselves is that sense of that, that's that core ego deficiency. I'm bad, I'm helpless, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, all that. And, and again, none of that matters because it's not a conditioned response to the Brahmavihara, the love you're contacting. Thanks. Thanks so much for that, Stephen. And uh, how, how are we for time? Do we have a few more minutes or do people need to yeah, get I, going? I can go a little, little longer today, but then I'll need to move on, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for the time you both have, have given already. Uh, I'm wondering, um, I think it, it might be interesting uh, for Andres, and I'd like you to weigh on, in on this. I, I was reading uh, the last section. Uh, I was finishing up your book on the Brahmaviharas while I was on vacation, Stephen. Uh, and you conclude the book in a very uh, interesting and uh, illuminating way. You, uh, you describe the kind of exit from the absolute uh, cessation up through the formless realms back to uh, the, the ordinary world we find ourselves within. And I'm curious uh, if uh, like a verbal report of that experience would uh, maybe help Andres at all, kind of 
uh, not that you can conceptualize these experiences and you know have them at the same time, but you know, for would, would that would that be of interest? And is that something you'd be willing to do? Are, are you saying to describe it? Describe it. Yeah. Just what that journey would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, it, is that interesting to you, Andres? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> um, well, well, as I mentioned, the the formless jhanas, the fifth through eighth jhana, are really differentiated qualities of the absolute. So, like we're on the way up, we're really getting steeped in in the vastness of infinite space, and then we're really getting steeped in just the vastness of infinite consciousness. And then the same with no thingness. I don't call it nothing because nothing again has a lot of meaning in English, but no thing that makes it better. That's really the more felt experience there. And neither perception or non-perception just means non-conceptual. It's direct awareness without any ability to reference, you know, like this tastes like chicken. There's no there's no memory of chicken to compare it to. It's just there's this. And then finally the absolute, which is the source. And again, I mentioned there's the unmanifest, which is really characterized by darkness, by absence, um, qualities of peace and stillness. And the manifest side is characterized by presence. So a substantial here-ness, a beingness, uh, coupled with pure love. So a love that is unconditioned in every way. And then there's also pure awareness there. So there's, again, perception without reflection you you have direct experience but there's no conceptual memory you can compare to and so that ends up moving you know the the awareness moves from that experience into neither perception or non-perception so into direct non-conceptual so you can see it's a it's just a, you're getting one flavor and then to the to the no thingness which is really more pointing to the emptiness and the fact that there's in the absolute substantiality and insubstantiality at the same time so part of the paradox of it and then and then pure consciousness or boundless consciousness same thing just a, there's no and there's no limit to it at all and then as i mentioned space and space holds form so then we move through the form jhanas backwards and each of the jhanas gets closer and closer to ordinary consciousness because in the fourth jhana, I mean, all of them have been characterized by no sense of self. There's no sense of me at all, but there's pure awareness and there's consciousness in, in the jhanas. And so that comes, you know, there's a whole range of things that we do in between there, but it comes back down to the ordinary consciousness and accessing the first jhana. Can I, can I ask a, a clarifying question? And thank you so much for... Uh, providing that description uh, for us. Yeah, may I? Sure. So, in your description of the the what you describe as the the absolute realm, uh, you this, describe certain qualities to it. Is this kind of a an intermediary zone between the the last of the the formless jhanas and cessation? Uh, you know, the source itself, or is this the manifest side? You know, just the beginnings of manifestation, just around cessation. Is that? Maybe that's a poor way to describe it. But. Well, cessation would be the source. That would be where all of it originates, because that's where the silence and the power and the such are all reside. And cessation is really just an awareness go deep enough where we can feel all sense of any sense of self or body 
is fading and dropping and then language begins to slow and eventually stop. And so uh, we then move into awareness and consciousness and then at some point those shut off, there's a lights out. But what one has to reconcile with is you know, the, the, uh, the fear, the worry, the terror, because we, we can tell we're going to be in, entering into this undifferentiated quality. And we also are clear, we don't know exactly how to undifferentiate again. You know how to separate again we, we don't have that skill it's all done based on some something in the mystery so we have to reconcile the fact that we're facing our own exist our own um what do you say elimination of existence or ending of existence and there's a lot of course the self-preservation instincts get triggered like mad in that in that territory so that's part of the reconciliation that has to happen the trust that has to be built to let go Thank you. And how I describe it is really just, it's been my experience and in teaching, I'm seeing students reporting, whether it's based on my influence, so this is how I'm describing my experience, or if there's as matching, I can't say, but I'm hearing reports that are similar to what I'm communicating. Hmm. Do you feel, I guess, yeah, my, my last question, um, and this definitely touches on issues of personal identity, and uh, I mean, one, one thing I we def definitely take seriously at, at QRI is exotic perspectives on identity. They're like this idea of like you start existing when you're born and stop existing when you die uh, might be kind of a potentially illusory or just like surface reality. And like there might be other yeah, the deeper reality of oneness or potentially that each moment of experience is its own different being. Um, but it, it, it sounds to me based on your description that, yeah, if the Janus, the, especially the formless Janus have this quality of um forgot how you put it but yes like no self uh no self uh um does does it feel like slash do you believe that on some level you're actually accessing kind of a the truth of unity um or becoming it rather than just like kind of like representing it in your experience and whether that distinction makes makes sense <laughs> Yeah, it's not a representation because well, there's no sense of self. So it does feel like you are actually entering into a realm. Because particularly with the form, John, is it feels as though awareness exits through the crown chakra. So it feels like you're actually leaving the territory of the body and leaving the territory of physical manifestation. So that's part of the experience. So, But the reports from everybody I know that's had those experiences is, it feels like you're entering a different realm. And that's why we call it the, you know, the realm, sometimes referred to as the realm rather than formless. So anyway, I'm not saying it right, but yeah, it does feel like you're, you're, you're away. So one, one maybe, <laughs> I hope this is not an information hazard. I, I don't think so. But like, I mean, something that um, is like scary a little bit on like, for example, ego death experiences on LSD and things like that. I wonder if this is also an issue is uh, with a formless Janus is, uh, yeah, the feeling that like, well, when you're exiting your sense of self or your current container, you don't know who you're going to come back as. Um, you kind of like erase that information. And especially when you introduce yeah concepts of eternity and timelessness and things like that is like, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm gonna land back on let's say, yeah, I don't know, uh, 
a pig in a factory farm and it's like okay darn like that's that's gonna suck so bad <laughs> so like i wonder if like that might be a potential yeah i don't know like fear slash issue that might arise i've never heard that one or experienced it so i don't think the there's a concern about it if i leave am i going to come back to the same the same sense of self the same body there may be some sense that we can tell that things are going to things are changing so i'm not going to land back in exactly the same way that i left i think i think that would be a common perception but not i'm going to miss my landing and end up uh, a half a world apart you know away in some other body or something I'm, i've never heard anybody can express concern about that once they hear our broadcast maybe that'll become a new concern people have but <laughs> presently not <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, those are yeah all the the question the burning questions I have. There's so much we could discuss, but uh, yeah, this has been very wonderful. I really appreciate it. And it's yeah. Yeah, nice spending time with you both. Interesting conversation, and the work on consciousness, I'm sure, is to be terribly important for all of us. <laughs> Thank you both so much uh, for for coming along and having this conversation. Uh, Stephen, where where can people find you? Uh, on on my website, I'm not actually there, but they can find out what I'm doing there, uh, awakeningdharma.org. And then uh, I've got some retreats coming up. The big one next year, I've got a two-week retreat in Croatia. I just got back from Croatia and had a retreat, and I just loved it. It was a wonderful country and amazing food and just a great setting. So I'll be doing a two-week, uh, one-week samatha. Week two will be on awakening. All right. So for, for retreats, books, and... Uh everything else you can go to steven's website awakeningdharma.org i'll put the, the link in the description and uh andres yeah you can find uh my personal blog qualiacomputing.com and then yeah where i work uh, qualiaresearchinstitute.org uh oh and finally my youtube channel like just look up my name and there is gomez samuelson on youtube and you'll see like yeah dozens of uh videos about consciousness all sorts of topics so. okay Thanks uh, so much for coming again. And uh, thank you everybody for watching. Uh, may you all be perfectly well. <laughs>